Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather on the Lord's day to hear your word, to pray, to sing your praises, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another, as Hebrews says, to love and good works. Be with us tonight. Oh, Holy Spirit, the true teacher, teach us from your blessed word that you inspired the prophets and apostles. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our section to deal with tonight is John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. I'm, I'm not going to necessarily read all through that just for time's sake, because we're going to go through it for the most part of verse by verse. You know, as we, the last time I was with you, we talked about, we looked at John chapter 9 and that miraculous healing of the man that was born blind and what got Jesus into trouble was the fact that he did that on the, the Sabbath day. And of course, the Pharisees considered that work, which they should not have. It was an act of mercy. And that man blind, I don't know if you realize that, to that man who was blind, he knew more theology than the teachers of Israel. He, he understood a lot and he got the best of them in a theological argument. And you think about it, this man, he was blind, probably heard a lot in the temple and knew the word of God in some capacity. And we see that because he was sympathetic with Jesus who healed him, they excommunicated him from basically the church. And we saw that that is a that meant not only religious separation, but it had economic consequences as well. And what was wonderful and how the John 9 ended was when Jesus heard about it, Jesus went looking for him and found him and saved him from his sins and told him that he was, well, the man said, uh, if you knew who you were talking to, he says, well, I, I'll believe if you can tell me who he is. I who am speaking with you am he, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. And so what we see as we move into chapter 10, there is a natural flow here from what happened in chapter 9 to chapter 10 that explains what Jesus is doing in this allegory that he gives here in chapter 10. Because what we're going to see is that when that man was excommunicated, Jesus seeks him out. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And he, he sought this man out. Why? Because this man was one of the elect of God. He was one of the sheep for whom Jesus came to die for. And so we see that as chapter 9 ends, the Pharisees, they wanted to know, is, are you speaking about us? And... Um, he says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. A con condemnation of these religious leaders. Now, we need to understand something of the imagery of the shepherd and the sheep. It's taken right out of the Old Testament, in fact. And we are told, in, in, if you go through and look up, 
passages in the Old Testament, you're going to see that Jehovah is said to be the shepherd of his people. After all, uh, and we, the congregation, is said to be his sheep. He's the shepherd, we are the sheep. Psalm 23, 1, that famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 79, 13 says, so we are the people, the sheep of thy pasture, and will give thanks forever. So the Old Testament pictured Jehovah, the living God, as a loving, tender-hearted shepherd, of whom Jesus is going to be the great shepherd, as opposed to the false shepherds that Jesus is going to criticize greatly here. Isaiah 40, verse 11, says this, talking about this coming shepherd. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead them who have their young. Now, while the Old Testament spoke of Jehovah as a good shepherd, the Old Testament talked about evil shepherds and contrasted those two. For example, in Jeremiah 23, verse 1, the scripture says, Woe unto those shepherds that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says Jehovah. Now that's going to fit in directly with what Jesus is about to say here as we, we will look at it. And then Ezekiel 34, 1 says this, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, even to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? Now, you're going to, we're going to understand something about false shepherds. They're concerned only about themselves, not the sheep. So the Old, text, Old Testament pictures shepherds who forsake the sheep, allowing them to become prey to the wild beasts, such as lions, bears, wolves. Now, we know about this, the duty of a shepherd from... David, do we not? In 1 Samuel 17, I've always been amazed by that passage because you're aware he was a shepherd. He wasn't considered to be the one who was going to replace Saul because he was the shepherd boy, but he's the one that God had chose, wasn't he? But you know, what's interesting about that is David says, you learn something about being a shepherd because David says, when a bear or a lion came and took one of the, the sheep, did he go, oh, that's too bad? No, he went after the lion and says he grabbed it by its mane and killed it. That still is an incredible passage. And he did the same to the bear. So the role of the shepherd was to protect the flock and do what it takes. Now, the sad thing about some of these shepherds is that we're told in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17, it says, I saw Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. 
That's a tragic thing when you don't have a shepherd. You can't control the sheep. They'll get lost. They'll be subject to the wild beasts and they'll be destroyed. So from the Old Testament, we see that the great son of David, the Messiah, will be the one prophesied to reunite the remnant of Israel. And so what we see here is that verse one, if you look at verse one, truly, truly, again, that is a double amen. We saw that Jesus uses that from time to time. And what it means is you better listen to what I'm about to say because it's very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, he is both a thief and a robber. Now, Jesus, we need to understand that Jesus is going to refer to those that don't enter by the door to the sheepfold, the hirelings, he's going to refer to them as the ruthless ones. They are those whom he is speaking to. They are the false shepherds. He's the good shepherd. They are the false shepherd. Now let's understand something about this sheepfold. What was a sheepfold? Well, for one, it was a a roofless um, area in the open field that had rough rocks behind it and it had a sturdy door. That was a sheepfold. And they got, they brought in the sheep, often by night, and the door was locked by the doorkeeper. And the doorkeeper would not open the door, but to the master, the shepherd, who would come in and lead the sheep out. That was a sheepfold. Now, a thief and a robber, obviously, they don't have the capacity to go by the door because then it has to be opened by the doorkeeper. So they'd find a way, scale the the wall or whatever, to steal the sheep. And what we see here, Jesus uses this allegory, this story of the shepherd and the sheep. And he's going to use it to refer to himself as that great shepherd as opposed to the false shepherds. Now, The Pharisees are those false shepherds. And these false shepherds, they will scatter the sheep. Now, in this regard, one of the things I think this this has, this passage, the early part, verses one and two, has two great applications already. One is, in this context, Jesus is saying, Those who try to enter by another door, they are the thieves and the robbers. Who does he have in mind specifically? The Pharisees. That's who he's been talking to. And that's the context. And they are those false shepherds, like the Old Testament says, those false shepherds, they will lead people astray. They don't care about the sheep. They only care about themselves. And when the going gets tough, they'll forsake the sheep, we're going to see. Now, also, I think it has an application that is, is broader than just a reference to 
the Pharisees, and that is that it is teaching that there is only one way of salvation. And Jesus is going to say, I'm that door. If you don't enter by me, you don't get into the sheepfold. So all the other religions of the world, they are attempts, they are thieves and robbers trying to get to God, right? And so anyone who doesn't have proper access to that door is a, is a robber, is a thief. And what is true about all the religions of the world? Their work salvation, right? And, and that's what distinguishes Christianity from all the other religions of the world. All the other religions and even the cults are man's attempt to try to do something to please God. It is works righteousness. So even the non-Christian uh, uh, religions, they are like the Pharisees, works oriented now, I, I, I like to use John 10 when I do evangelism with people because it's always trying to stress to sinners there's only one way of salvation. You know, today, I don't think I have to tell you that the most common uh, belief among people is, well, it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you believe and you're sincere. Has anyone ever told you that? Well, I've heard it multiple multitude of times. But there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. That has always been the troubling point with religions against Christianity throughout church history. The troubling point has always been that you Christians are so narrow-minded that you believe that only Jesus and only through Jesus is their salvation. Now, that's what got Christians in trouble with Rome. You know, Rome didn't mind to have other religions. They tolerated some other religions as long as you'd go into the temple and give homage to Caesar and say, oh, he's divine as well. As long as you did that, you can do whatever, you can believe whatever you want. And those rascal Christians would not do that. And so they got the ire of Rome against them. In fact, when Paul was at Thessalonica, remember, uh, some of the people caused the authorities to rise up against Paul and, and others. And here's, remember what they said? It said, these men, referring to the apostolic team, who have turned the world upside down have come here also proclaiming there is another king besides Caesar. And that's why they hated the Christians. Well, Jesus in verse two, he says, you got to enter the door. The one who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep, the true shepherd. And as verse th uh, three says here, as you look at it, it says the doorkeeper keeper opens the door to the real shepherd, not the false shepherd, but to the real shepherd. And in verse three, I want you to notice here a great biblical truth that's mentioned here. 
Look what it says. So when the doorkeeper opens the door to the true shepherd, the sheep hear his voice. Now whose voice? The shepherd's voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The shepherd leads them out. Now as verse four mentions, the sheep follow the shepherd. Why? What does it say? Why do they follow the shepherd? They follow the shepherd because they hear and know the voice of the shepherd. Now your animal, I mean, if sheep do that, I don't know on the farm, do, do, uh, do the pigs and the horses, do they, do they know your voice? I, I, I would think so, and you're shaking your head, yeah. I mean, animals, they know the voice of the master, of the true shepherd. And notice what Jesus says here. He calls his own sheep by name. Now, now that's a wonderful thing. I don't want us to miss how wonderful that truth is right there. When it says, he knows each of his sheep by name. Now, we know as we work through John chapter 10, that all believers are said to be the sheep. And we know, when did that love for the sheep begin? Well, we're told in the scripture it began from all eternity. And it reaches back to the foundation of the world, we're told. When did God's electing love start, according to Ephesians 1? From the foundation of the world. You know, on, uh, <clears throat> on Judgment Day, as we see in Matthew 25, that great scene that's going to happen, that everybody is going to be there that was ever born in the history of mankind. How does he separate mankind? The sheep from the goats. The sheep are the elect of God whom he has saved. The goats are the unbelievers who have refused to believe and will perish in their sins. Now, the true shepherd knows their sheep by name and leads them out. He guards them. He protects them from their predators. He leads them to what? To the green pastures is what the shepherd does. And you know what one of the, um, the great theological tragedies in church history is that some people have really spoken negatively of that great doctrine of God's sovereignty and his divine predestination election. As if, and I've heard them say this, they think that doctrine is a doctrine from the devil. I've heard them say those words. That's a doctrine of demons. That's a doctrine of the devil. Oh, that divine sovereignty and God's love that reaches back is a doctrine of the devil? I don't know about you, but I find that to be one of the most comforting doctrines in all of the word of God. And for example, you know, it says in Psalm 139, that great passage where it says he formed us in our mother's womb 
and we are wonderfully uh, intricately woven together and my soul knows it very well. And it says, all thy days were ordained to thee when as yet there was not one of those days. All of our days were ordained by God when we hadn't even seen the light of day yet. We hadn't been born yet. And then it goes on to say, how precious are thy thoughts towards me, O God. If I should should number them, they would outnumber the sand of the sea. That's how special it is. And remember, we've already seen in John 6, verse 37, that Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And I will raise him up on the last day. Well, who are these people that, that the Father has given? Well, those are the elect of God. That's, that's who they are. They are the sheep that God has determined to save. And you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's a beautiful image. He knows us by name. He knew us by name before we were even born. He knew all about us, and he already determined the, the, uh, how long we would live because Job says he has numbered our days and we cannot go beyond the days that God has ordained. Now, this idea of the sheep and how tender he is and how he, he looks for that sheep, turn over to Luke 15 for a moment to that parable of Jesus, the parable of the lost sheep, very short. Luke 15 Verses three through seven. And he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus will search out for the lost sheep. Now, when we were unbelievers, that's where we were. We were that lost sheep. That's always been a dear uh, portion of scripture to me because I've told you I didn't grow up in the church and I was an agnostic as a teenager And I go off to college and God sought me out. Jesus went looking for this lost sheep until he found me. So it's always going to be special. And and there was rejoicing that that sheep was found. Now here's the thing. His sheep hear his voice. Remember, Jesus has already said in John 10, They don't recognize the voice of a false shepherd, but they do recognize the voice of the real shepherd. So there was a time in my life, there was a time in some of y'all's life, I've heard your testimony, 
that there was a time you didn't hear the voice of Jesus. Then all of a sudden you heard the voice of Jesus and you believed, you came to Jesus. Now, I I want us to understand, because Jesus is talking against the Pharisees here. Turn back to John 8 for a moment and look at verse 47, because this is a vital passage because he says, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. You, that, there's the Pharisees. You don't, you don't believe because you, you, you don't know the voice of the master. You don't know the voice of the good shepherd. And the reason you can't hear is because you're not of God. You're, you're not one of the sheep. You're not one of the sheep that God, that Jesus has gone looking for. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 1. Talking about this, you got to hear the voice of the shepherd. First Thessalonians 1, look at verse 5. And, and notice the context there at 1 Thessalonians 1. Look, look at ver- well, look at verse four. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The gospel came to them in power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now turn over to chapter two of 1 Thessalonians. Look at verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, let me ask you a question. Paul was not the only preacher that ever went through Thessalonica. There were other itinerant preachers. Why is it that when the Thessalonians heard Paul, they knew immediately that this was the real thing. This was truth. Why? Because they heard the voice of the shepherd, Jesus, preaching through his preacher, Paul. That's how they knew. They heard that voice. That's why, remember, Jesus oftentimes ends many of his stories by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And if you don't have ears to hear, why don't you hear him? Because as Jesus says, well, you're not of God. That's why you don't hear. It's not that complicated. So in verse seven of our text in John 10, Jesus says, I am actually, I am that door to the sheepfold. 
And all who, he says, all who came before me, they're thieves and they're robbers. Now, there were others, by the way, before Jesus came along, who were claiming to be the Messiah. And the Romans knew about it. And some of the Jewish authorities knew about some of those who were claiming to be the Messiah. And they always proved to be a disappointment because they weren't the Messiah. So there were false Messiah. Messiah is out there. But Jesus says, now I am the door. And the only way you're going to get into the sheepfold and lead my sheep out is if you're the real shepherd and I am that door. I'm not only the good shepherd, I am that actual door. So these thieves and these robbers, they are false shepherds. As Jess has been saying and bringing out, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, they are the thieves and they are the robbers. They are the false shepherds who are destroying the people. And, you know, the thing about it here is, now notice the text says, if you look, turn back to John 10, notice we've already emphasized the sheep, they don't hear and they don't follow the voice that is not the real shepherd. So they, they can distinguish the two. And here's, here's the thing. Well, turn over to Matthew 24, and I think it'll become clear. Turn over to Matthew 24, look at verses 23 and 24. Matthew 24, 23 and 24. Jesus is speaking, he says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, mislead, now here's key phrase, to mislead if possible, even the elect. So in the bottom line here is, if, you're, if, if, if we are a real sheep, we will eventually know the truth. Again, my own story, when I told you, when God saved me in Utah and I moved back to Tennessee, I didn't have, I didn't know the Bible hardly at all, but I had a desire for the Bible. And I got off on, turned out to be Jehovah's Witnesses, I didn't know better. I got off on Garner Ted Armstrong, I didn't know better. And it caused problems. But you know what God did by his mercy? He led me out of it. He led me out of it. And the reason he led me out of it or lead anybody up, those who are the sheep, you're not going to deceive them in the long run because they're going to know what is truth. And when my, the leader of our ministry brought over a book called The Kingdom of the Cults written by Walter Martin, which is very good, there was no reason for me, as I read that, I said, I guess those guys are wrong. That guy, those guys are wrong. The Lord helped me to see their error. You're not going to deceive God's elect for very long. Well, Jesus, back to John 10 in verse 9, he emphatically declares himself to be the door to the sheepfold. 
the only door, all others are thieves and robbers. Only Jesus can save sinners. Now, brethren, never, ever apologize for the exclusivity or the narrowness of the Christian faith. Never apologize to anybody for that. And they're going to try to get you to apologize. You mean to tell me? You mean to tell me all these other people, if they don't believe in Jesus, are going to go to hell? You, you surely don't believe that, do you? Now, we don't, we're not to be ugly, but we say, you know, there's only one way, and there's only one truth, and there's only one door, and Jesus is on that door. Yeah, I'm here to tell you that is the only way. Now, they're not going to like it more than likely, and they may hate you for it. And, you know, that's okay. It, it, you have to come to the point, that's okay for them to hate you because you are so narrow-minded to think Jesus is the only way. Who are you there for anyway? Are you, are you, there? you know, for the longest time as a young Christian, I had to get over my, my own pride and my own emphasis upon myself and what other people thought. And so there were times, you know, when I was a young Christian on the campus of a secular university, I was at times, afraid. I didn't want people to see me carrying a Bible around because they may call me a Jesus freak. And that bothered me. And yet at the same time, I realized, John, why, why are you a coward? You're just a coward. Why are you ashamed for people to see you with a Bible? And God, by his grace, got me over that. And we should never be ashamed of, of the truth of the faith that Jesus is the only door whereby you can go and find salvation. You know, this, this door, when the shepherd goes in, he will lead them out to the green pastures to be fed. You know, the only food that will feed us is the food that the great shepherd provides for us. And, you know, when it says there in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Well, saved from what? Saved from our miserable, sinful state. That's what we're being saved from. And Jesus not only says in verse 10, well, he goes on verse 10, and he says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Now, this person that finds life, it's, it's only in Jesus that we find life. You know, that when, when, when God saved me by his grace, it was not lightning or things like this, some vision the one thing that immediately changed, I finally understood why I was here on earth because I was living a miserable, meaningless life. And the moment 
I gave my life to Jesus. About three days later, I realized I, I'm no longer uh, distraught. I now know why I'm here. I didn't know much about the Bible, but I had a meaning in life all of a sudden. Well, where did that come from? The Holy Spirit. I will give you life and I will give it to you abundantly. Is this not what Jesus said in John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who should ever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, Jesus defines what it means to be saved. It means to have everlasting life. That's what he meant. But guess what? You and I don't have to wait till we die to get eternal life. The Bible talks about us. When we come into the faith, we're already raised up with Christ, Colossians 3, 1. We're already raised up in the heavenly places. We already, in one sense, eternal life is, has begun and it just changes form uh, when we die and go into the presence of the Lord. And so this, this, this way, of, of this eternal life, this abundant life, this happiness that comes from knowing Jesus, you know, the Bible talks about what is happiness? Well, really, happiness is a, essentially is a state of mind, is what it is. It's our, our outlook on life. And when we have that abundant life, we have a purpose. We know why we're here. We're here to glorify Jesus. And the Bible in the Psalm says, happy is the man who does what? Who keeps the law of God. You want to be happy? You want to be blessed? That's another word for happiness it translated being blessed then obey the commandments of God in the Lord Jesus that's how you're happy and you, and you see God created you you and me to have fellowship with him and the only way to have fellowship with him is to be on the right basis to go through the door which is Jesus and when you go through that door then it opens up all these things I, I've told non-Christians I said you know what, you, you, you don't know what the green pasture is because all you know is over here. I'm telling you there's a pasture over here that is magnificent. It's a green pasture. It will be a life that you cannot even imagine, but you got to go through the door. You got to go through Jesus to get it. You know, one of the things when he uh, gives us that life, he saves us, is that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And we have that freedom. What, what else comes with that abundant life? We got freedom from the guilt of sin. We got freedom from the power of sin. We got freedom from that misery of that sin. We get uh, uh, freedom from the punishment. The fear of judgment is gone because there is no fear in judgment, First John says. All of that's gone. All of that's that abundant life that Jesus gives. You go through the door. All that's offered in Christ. And in verse 11, he says, there is a great contrast between the good shepherd and the hireling. And what is that difference fundamentally? Well, the good shepherd protects the sheep. And he will go to great ends, just like David did, to go get rescue that sheep. A good shepherd protects the sheep from the wolves. That's a good shepherd. 
Now, what is a hireling? I want you to look what Jesus says about the hireling in verse 12. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, behold, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. You know what the false shepherd does? He abandons the sheep in their greatest hour of need. That's what he does. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They didn't care about the sheep. And that's who Jesus is talking to right here. You know, the hireling, he said, you all are the hirelings. They abandon the sheep. Jesus says in verse 13, notice what he says in verse 13. Why do they abandon the sheep? Well, verse 13, he says, he flees because he's a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. Not concerned about him. Well, who is he concerned about? Himself. That's who the false shepherd is concerned about. Getting a following to build himself up. That's the false shepherd. And as Jesus said in verse 10, the thieves come only to kill and destroy and they will not lay down their life for the sheep, but they will abandon them. So what were the Pharisees? If the Pharisees the hirelings, what were they doing? How were they the hirelings? Well, they were trying to gain honor for themselves. And Jesus calls them out, does he not? I want you to turn over to Matthew 23 to see how Jesus calls out these hirelings. Matthew 23, look at verses 1 through 7. Matthew 23, 1 through 7, Jesus spoke to the multitude and to the disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. In other words, they're hypocrites. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with as much as a finger, but they do all their deeds to be, to be noticed of men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces being called men or rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher. And then he goes on to say to them, look at verses 12, just drop down to verses 12 through 15. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. You do not enter yourselves, 
nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel abroad on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Remember, Jesus says, the false shepherds will kill and destroy. They are out to destroy men's souls by their doctrines of men. And what we see here, how do they destroy men's souls? By the works righteousness that they were advocating. That's how they destroy men's souls. This is why Paul in Romans 9.31 says that Israel has pursued a law of righteousness and have not obtained it, but the Gentiles have pursued it by faith and have found it. That those pagan Gentiles have found something that the pious Pharisees, shepherds of Israel, never found because they're looking through it through works righteousness. You know, Paul said in Philippians 3, 9, he says that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God on the basis of faith, not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness. This is why Paul so adamantly opposed the Judaizers in Antioch of Syria, who, what were the Judaizers teaching? That you had to submit to the law of Moses, particularly the law of circumcision, in order to be saved. And Paul vehemently opposed them to their face. And it led to the council of Jerusalem, where they went up to Jerusalem to let the apostles uh, settle the issue in Acts 15, the great council of Jerusalem. And they settled it saying, Paul is right. It's by faith and not by works. You know, any theology that teaches salvation by works is a damning theology to the soul. This theology kills men in hell forever. That's what Jesus that's why Jesus says, you make your proselyte more fit for hell than yourselves. That's why Paul in Galatians 1 says, those who bring another gospel, and who is he referring to? The Judaizers, those who were teaching works righteousness. They are accursed of God. They are anathema. That's what anathema means, cursed of God for teaching another gospel. He says, that's not the gospel I brought you. I didn't bring you that kind of gospel. I brought you a gospel by faith in Jesus alone. You know, all the destructive nature of all the religions of the world outside of Christianity is, as I've already said, works righteousness. What does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says? For by grace are we saved through faith. 
and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. This is why Roman Catholicism is damning to the soul because it teaches works salvation. You know, in the Reformation, what, would, what did Luther find? What, what was the great doctrine? Sola fide, where you have five solas, but sola fide was the one he stressed. Justified by faith alone in Christ, not by works, not by climbing up the steps and doing all of these, these things to try to please God. And how did Rome respond to the Reformation? Through their Council of Trent. All you have to do is go and read the Council of Trent. This was, the, this was Rome's argument against the Reformation. And, and here's what Rome says. If you believe you're saved by faith alone, then you are anathemized. So <laughs> we got the Romanists saying, you are accursed, and we got Paul, we got the reformers saying, no, you're accursed if you believe by works righteousness. You know, when I was in seminary, I took a course on the cults, and here's what part of the cult, uh, the course requirement. You had to go out and you had to present a paper, but you had to go out and you had to talk to a, a cultist. Whatever cult you chose, you had to go find one and talk directly to them. I chose Mormonism, which means I had to go and find what they call them wards. Our church, Mormonism calls it a ward. I will never forget my interview with the guy. At first, he didn't want me to record it. And I said, well, I'm recording it only so that I wouldn't mislead people what you say. He says, okay, you can record it. You know the first words out of his mouth it was? We believe that you are saved by your works. I sat there, okay. <laughs> I've never had anybody tell me that right at the start. But that's true. They're works oriented. That's all that what is what Mormonism is. Just like all the other false religions. This is why in 2002, when we were in the RPCS, we had to call out the, the federal vision because the federal vision theology is basically a hybrid form of Romanism. And you, we, we didn't enjoy taking on some of our friends, but you see, if you believe that you're saved by works, that is destroying your soul. If we are true shepherds, we cannot allow that kind of teaching to be permitted. That's why one of the, the duties of an elder of the church, we gotta be able to refute those who are gainsayers. We have to refute those who are disturbing families, Titus 1 says. We have to refute the hirelings doctrine is what we have to refute. And our, you know, <clears throat> Let, let's face it. When we go out, when you go out in evangelism, here's what you're going to find most of the time. Most everybody, and I mean that, most everybody who's not a Christian, how do they, how do you, 
What do they say how they're going to get into heaven? I hope I will get in. Ask one while back, well, what do you mean you hope? Well, I, I, are you saying you hope your good works outweigh your bad? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I said, let me, let me you want to know what the Bible says? I need to tell you what the Bible says. You're not going to make it if that's what you're going to do. If that's how you're trying to get into heaven, I've got to tell you the bad news, and then I'm going to tell you some wonderful news. And you know what we have to do, essentially, when we talk about people, about Christ, any evangelistic endeavor, we have to take apart that works righteousness mentality. We have to destroy that and to show them biblically, that's not how you get into heaven. But I will show you how you do. And, and that's why Jesus says, I'm the door. You got to go through the door. And, and notice what Jesus says. If you turn back to John 10, notice as the good shepherd, verse 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is why, number one, this is what we got to understand about Jesus. Remember the times we've already seen it in John, have we not? Where they wanted to arrest Jesus. They wanted to get stones and kill him. But what does the scripture says? It was not his hour. It's, we've already seen it said three times we've already seen it. It says it was not his hour. It was not the appointed time. But when Judas betrayed Jesus at the Last Supper and he goes out and that, that party of the Sanhedrin comes, Jesus says, remember Peter smoked the ear off that, that, that guy? And Jesus says, look, do you not think that I could ask my father to send 12 legions of angels to protect me if I wanted to? All I had to do is ask. But that's not why I came into this world. And Jesus said to those who came to rest him, the hour of darkness has been given to you. Now is your hour. But I lay down my life voluntarily. No one forced Jesus to lay down his life. He did it voluntarily because he's the good shepherd. He is the door. And let me mention this to us. <clears throat> when we talk to people about Christ for an evangelism, at some point, we have got to talk to people about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. We have to. Because if we don't, we really haven't shared the gospel yet. Because are we going to get in by our good works? No, we're not going to get in by our good works. So if we're not going to get in by our good works, and if the Bible says you have to be perfect, then how are we going to be perfect? Well, not by me. By a perfect substitute, yes. It's by the perfect substitute. It's by what he does. What does the scripture say in, in 1 Peter 3.18? 1 
For Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live into righteousness by whose wounds we were healed. What wounds were that? That terrible poison that's within all of us, sin, that kills us. Do you remember that we... Uh, <clears throat> In John 3, we looked at that passage. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. And he was, as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Remember that bronze serpent, when the people complained against God about the manna, they were, God sent poisonous snakes and were biting the people and they were dying by the thousands and they begged for God to Moses, help us, Moses, help us. And Moses said, what am I going to do? He says, raise up the bronze serpent. And anybody, anybody who looks, anybody who looks at the serpent in faith will be instantly healed. Now, he didn't say, go run around the camp seven times, do penance or throw water over your back. He didn't say any of this. All you had to do is look in faith to the provision the substitute. And Jesus, that's who Jesus is talking about. I am that substitute. And I'm the remedy for your sin problem. That's why we've got to talk about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. I am perfect only in Jesus am I perfect. He kept the law for me and for you. And therefore, we will get in on that basis. But you see, that's not where the, the Pharisees were, were they? That's not where they were at all. And Jesus says, look, I lay down my life and I will take it up. And he says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This commandment I received from my father. And what was the result of that? It says in verse 19, as we end here, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. You know what some of them said? Verse 20, you're insane, Jesus. You got a demon. You're out of your mind by teaching this kind of stuff. And yet, verse 21 says, others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So he created a theological dilemma. Well, surely no one can do the works that this man does unless he really is from God. But you see, the false shepherds refused to even consider, even consider that Jesus just might be the Messiah. And Jesus says, that's why they're hirelings. But I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And you got to go through the door. And I am that door. I'm your only hope. 
never apologize that Jesus is the only way for sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you sought us out when we weren't even looking for you. Your mercy and grace is almost almost beyond words. The love that you had for us. We remember God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you died for us. And you picked us up in your bosom and you're going to carry us all the way to glory. We praise your holy name. Amen.